Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Clearmotive Marketing. Thank you to my business partner, Chad Croker, and the entire team who worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make this show a reality. As a founding partner at Clearmotive, I'm excited to announce the official launch of our industrial marketing system. As a company with 15 plus years of experience with a variety of clients in nearly every sector, we identified that industrial manufacturing companies were underserved. You have unique needs, and we have developed a unique skill set to help you succeed. If you build and sell a product that helps other companies, we have developed an industrial marketing system to get your highest priority product in front of your ideal customer profile in less than eight weeks. Gardner recently reported that your buyers are 87% of the way through their buying process before contacting your company directly. That means it's never been more critical to apply the right marketing process to create and close more deals. Our three-stage industrial marketing system helps you shorten your sales cycle by using modern marketing tactics designed specifically for your industry and more importantly, for the way your clients like to buy. Stop sitting on the sidelines wondering which part of your marketing is working and put a system in place that makes it easy for your most valuable prospects to find you and get excited about your solution to their challenges. To find out more about what ClearMotive's industrial marketing system can do for you, please check us out at www.clearmotive.ca IMS, or better yet, open up your email and contact me directly at tyler at clearmotive.ca, T-Y-L-E-R. I'm excited to chat with you and put a plan in place to get your most valuable leads contacting you and not your competitors. Hello and a warm collisions YYC welcome to my friend from all the way in from Toronto, Mr. Chris Hogg. How you doing, Chris? I'm great, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Uh, dude, so good to so good to see you. And not that the audience cares, but we are in court recording in person, which is a, which is a rarity these days as I record everything everything remote. COVID has uh, has won me over with the convenience of remote recording, <laughs> but I do love a good face to face conversation. And you are in from Toronto. You and I have owned each other for a bunch of years. We, you are a returning guest. We did a podcast before COVID about mm-hmm. you know about digital transformation, about a conference that I believe you were ramping up on. Yep. And unfortunately, COVID uh, had other, had other ideas. But we'll park that, and we'll maybe we'll revisit that at the end because I I was excited about that then, and I still am. If you guys are still going to be doing that, but in place of talking about what COVID knocked off of uh, knocked us off our feet on, let's talk about you and what you do. You own Digital Journal Group and you also own Digital Journal. Mm-hmm. So I love to jump in the elevator. Let's 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 grab a couple floors. Tell us what Digital Journal Group is all about. We'll go from there. Digital Journal Group is a an organization that helps uh, other organizations tell stories. So B2B focused brand storytelling. Uh, we sort of take the art and act and science of journalism, and uh, that's my background, and we help companies tell stories in digital channels, uh, ultimately to grow audience, grow revenue, grow market share, but really looking at uh, the stories that will engage an audience, uh, their audiences, attract new audiences, and ultimately help grow a community around a business. Okay, the journalism. Let's let's take that one apart right away. It's it's. We all know that journalism has changed. We know that journalists have had a hard time. We know that newsrooms have been decimated. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the if you're in our industry at all, or even peering over the wall, you can't help but notice that that's an industry that's changed significantly. When I first met you, you you threw the term brand journalism at me. So talk a little bit about you have a journalism background, but you've brought that into a storytelling medium, mm-hmm. which maybe wasn't. Not that journalism isn't storytelling, but oftentimes you can easily think about it as just reporting. Here's the news. Here's what's going on. Talk to me a little bit about even the industry yourself, what you've seen kind of evolve. And now those words of, you know, what are journalists doing today that are having impact from a storytelling or maybe marketing and how they've kind of come together a little bit more and then how that's morphed into what you guys do? Yeah, it's been, it's a sort of, 10-year overnight story, if, if that makes any sense. Lots of learning. <laughs> yes, it does. Lots Ten year, of there's a lot of 20-year overnight successes yeah. out there. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, my background is in journalism. Uh, I studied it, did broadcast journalism for a number of years, uh, ran a media publication for a number of years. And in about 2012, uh, I started looking at ways that we could take what journalists do and help brands ultimately communicate to their audience. So it's not an ad where you're trying to push a product messaging, although sometimes that matters. It's at a core, what is the story that will persist day in and day out to keep a brand's audience interested. So like a journalist would be covering a a news beat, if you do sports or business, every day you're talking about what's going on in the market. And for a lot of brands who were looking, you know, the rise of social media, the rise of online audiences, uh, you have to attract an audience in an organic way by being interesting or relevant or helpful or entertaining sometimes, depending on the, the industry or market. 
And a lot of organizations were not structured to be able to, you know, write content, produce video, or figure out what that story would be day in and day out. So in 2012, we did some experimentation uh, with a social media company, uh, launched exclusively focusing on social media, saw a ton of success around, you know, bite size, taking a story, cutting it up into a whole bunch of small little pieces, distributing it on blogs, on newsletters, on uh, social media channels. And the with the ups and downs of social, at the core, what, what we were doing was producing uh, sort of committing acts of journalism on behalf of brands. We would interview executives, we would interview their customers, and we'd try and figure out, uh, oftentimes it was stories about transformation, what was happening, what's new, how do we tell an audience and share insight, getting brands to be a little bit vulnerable and sharing things that they're learning or doing. And uh, for the last five years, we've been focused on not so much social media, but really focused on sort of the long form content that will get you found in search, that will get you shared by audiences. And depending on the industry or market or uh, company that you that you run, the stories will differ. But at the core, it's always about being interesting and delivering. You have to give your audience value before you ask something of them. So it's quite different than advertising. We don't, we don't want to quote any Gary V here, but the give, 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 get, or the jab, 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 yeah. jab, you know, <laughs> that side of it, engaging your audience. Talk to me a little bit about, and we can split this and dice it up a few different ways, but there's creating your content is one thing. There's having an audience, building that audience, and having that audience um, interested, curious enough to receive content on a regular basis. I've, Because we can talk about where this just falls into like just content marketing. There's so many words in our industry, and mm-hmm. if you're an outsider, it can get kind of frustrating because you read one article about one thing and then the next article almost seems to contradict it, even though they might even be talking about the same thing. So when you work with companies as Digital Journal Group, you're helping to curate and understand the stories that me- are meaningful to them, but also to their customers. Yep. And then is it right for me to assume that Digital Journal is also the platform that you've created to allow a place where you can accumulate some of these audience members so that the, there's there's a place for this content to land? <laughs> yeah, there is. So I, I have the two separate sides of my world, Digital Journal Group or DJG for short, is the, is the brand storytelling, brand marketing business. And then Digital Journal as a media platform does have a sizable audience that I can help grow a, uh, an organization's audience with. But first, if we can just like to start and nail down on a brand journalism engagement or what a company should think about. To your point, okay. the internet is full of advice and it <laughs> often does contradict. You're 100% nailed it there. And one of the things that we, we we really focusing in on is understanding the ecosystem that exists within a brand or an organization to start. So just because you know publishing on Tuesday on these channels works for another company does not mean it's going to work for you. Also, key messaging or storytelling or where you're at. A lot of the starting point for us is sitting down and journalistically drawing insight out of someone, much like you do with podcasts here, where you get a lot of people sharing information. The just the you know good old fashioned chats or the discussions are super valuable to try and uncover insight. And once we know sort of what an organization wants to say, what it finds interesting, what it wants to communicate, we can also go out and look at the market. We can look at social media discussions. There's lots of tools and data that can be leveraged to figure out, you know, what's the Venn diagram if on one side is what you want to say as an organization and on the other side is what the audience wants to hear. The goal is to try and figure out where do those two circles in the Venn diagram overlap? And oftentimes there will be certain things that are that you want to do as an organization that are relevant, but the audience might not care. But if you put a spin on something, the audience might find it interesting. So the a lot of the brand storytelling uh, and the way content storytelling, content marketing systems get put together is figuring out the data and the in, the audience insight and where it meets the corporate vision. And then on the other side of, of what I do with digitaljournal.com, uh, it's a, a lot of organizations that don't have an audience and want to grow one. We can distribute content to a place where there's already an existing audience, millions of readers, hundreds of thousands of social followers, uh, which can sometimes be a good starting point to jump off an audience where one doesn't already exist. Mm. Okay, let's let's pause on Digital Journal because I really want to unpack that. And you've been running that for quite a few years. And I can only imagine that's been a nonstop evolving mm-hmm. uh, way of doing business. Let's pivot back to, I know you do a lot of work in B2B. Mm-hmm. And I may have done a little bit of work in that space as well. And I've run into a lot of subject matter experts, engineers, mm-hmm. uh, R&D people. Oftentimes, what the audience cares about is not necessarily their main focus. They're very focused on the, te- the technical, the 
eight point font, two thousand words. Like I want to tell you how awesome this thing is that I've built or that we've created, and I appreciate that passion. Talk to me a little bit about you know it feels like that journalist superpower to take that and go, yeah, that's great. I love all this information, but we're going to find a way now to make it interesting to your audience. Like, is that a challenge? Am I falsely like projecting my own past experiences on that? Or is that something you run into? We see it all the time. And it's really the art uh, or the magic of brand journalism or brand storytelling is figuring out what audience focused means. Um, Mm. It's not it's you know there's no silver bullet and it's not some secret you know wizard of oz stuff that happens behind a curtain the analogy i like to give that really makes non-content people understand it is if i go to a cocktail party and i'm standing beside you and if all i do is tell you how great i am and here's what i do and here's what <laughs> i learned yesterday and here's this thing that i'm working on eventually i become pretty boring and you won't go home remembering much whereas if we flip the conversation and it's two way i'm asking you things about you I'm trying to understand what you find interesting about what part of my life might be or how I can contribute back. We're both likely to walk away with a much better experience. So really thinking about the cocktail party engagement, you have five minutes to talk to someone. How do you bring that to life in digital channels? And the best way to do so is to figure out who your audiences are. Sometimes, you know, in B2B, it gets very complex where your decision maker, your buyer, your influencer can sometimes be completely different people. You might have to have messaging for a CFO. You might have to have messaging for someone who's a technologist. So understanding who your audiences are and what matters to them, you might have the best widget in the world to sell. But at the end of the day, talking about the problems that it solves or how it solves it or what an organization can do and benefit from is a far better tactic than saying, buy my widget. Oh, and so often, I would say more now today in the world of of rapid innovation, oftentimes as a consumer, I don't even understand the problem that I have, let alone what the solution out there might be. So it's a much longer journey for me to even become problem aware before I can even become product aware. And, but if I've created it and I'm the engineer and I, I already believe, you know, like you oftentimes believe there's a deeper, richer understanding of my offering than there sometimes is, which the word storytelling really lends well to let's go on a journey together. No, no, jump right to the end and then buy. Mm, unfortunately, <laughs> no. And I think we've all seen, and we've all, we've all read the same Gardner reports, the amount of self-directed research that that buyer wants to do now on their own. Mm-hmm. If you're not making it easy for them, i.e. putting good content out breadcrumbs, Unfortunately, your competitor probably might be. And that, 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 have you seen a change in COVID? Has it been a shift? Like, are more companies going, oh, oh shit, I'm kind of behind? A hundred percent. The pandemic changed a lot of organizations woke up saying, oh, God, we have nothing online, or we don't have the right messaging online, or we don't even have a website that's capable of delivering a, a user experience that will be engaging and want to bring people back. So, the, it, a lot of what we've seen from organizations is, a fundamental realization that if we, you know, if a, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, doesn't make a sound. Well, if you don't create content, do you even exist on the internet? And creating content for other people is different than creating content about myself or about my organization. And the word storytelling we keep using here, I think, is really important because storytelling is what makes it memorable. It's not an article. It's not a blog post. It's storytelling. So you're thinking about, you know, what is the common thing we all face? What is the challenge that someone might be doing and what is the resolution and having some level of conflict or some level of pressure or some level of thing that needs to be resolved makes it relatable to an audience and uh, a great storytelling experience from a B2B in particular perspective mm-hmm. would be to uh, walk with your audience through the challenges that we all face in an open and transparent way, which makes some organizations really uncomfortable, but there's always a way to do it safely or brand safely. And trying to find constructs or you know, interviewing someone and using other people as examples when they share their story, ultimately presenting a resolution and that conflict resolution and the story of how you got there or what you've learned in the process uh, is often what makes content memorable or what makes storytelling memorable. So it's not just another piece. It's not just another report. You're really thinking about um, sitting down with your audience and and trying explicitly to have them remember something about the engagement or the the article or the video that they've just watched. Which I really appreciate. And I'm a big I'm a big advocate and a big supporter, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, of Joseph Campbell and the Hero's Journey. And there's very different of writing a technical paper of the specs and specifications of a product and what it can or can't do versus taking someone on a journey and 
um, empathizing with them, connecting with them, helping them and uh, aligning while they overcome a problem and then have a resolution and ultimately allow them to be the hero in your story, which is really their story. That's a lot trickier than taking a very technically adept individual and mm -hmm. writing a white paper or whatever you want to call it. Oh, here's a question for you. White, white paper, blog, long form, short form. And we're way in the weeds here, but give us a little bit of like, how would you bracket some of these in terms of why would you use a white paper over a blog? Why would you, you know, just some of the terminology that gets thrown around again, hyper loosely in, in this content uh, driven world that we're all hearing about, but a lot of people are still kind of scared to get involved. All of them matter. <laughs> nice. It's uh, I know that's kind of a frustrating answer if you're on the other side of this trying to figure out how you should prioritize. But uh, the the part of the, the really important part of building a system of content or a system that's going to work for an organization is understanding what each audience wants, how they consume content, where they go, and um, what will be most effective. So I can give you an example. Uh, we've done work with a financial services business that had stories to get out, simple blog posts about people doing things. And that was really high level, top of funnel, just awareness. They were going to be interesting stories. Um, the This was a fintech company. And if you went further down into someone who might buy a fintech product, it starts to get more technical. So a white paper that's written for an engineer or written for a CFO that's trying to understand the business case of why they should invest in something, that's a very different piece of content than the top of funnel story, you know, interesting, yep. maybe the the cool and sexy stuff that gets people in the door is very different. A bit so, light, a bit easier to digest, yeah. kind of almost magazine content where you can skim it and kind of get the general idea. And some of the best success we've seen is every time there's a an interview done, we think about... <clears throat> How many different places can we put that piece of content and how can we reskin it? So a lot of organizations, uh, content production can get time consuming and expensive, but systems that are put in place to try and get have content do more than one thing for you is something that we've learned over the years that's really important. So don't write one blog post and then call it the end of the day or don't write one white paper. It's thinking about how do I you know, make the one interview I've done, turn it into 10 different things. If we talk about in the world of fintech or let, just using fintech as an example, we might have financial services as something we talk about. We might have crypto as another thing. We might have a technical piece. Those are three completely different subject matter that could create an entire series of content for you, create a white paper, turn, you know, snippets into social media graphics. Really, uh, it can take an army or a process that's put together to get more out of one piece of content is where businesses see a higher return on investment. And we're seeing, it to your earlier question of the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of organizations trying to figure out how do we breadcrumb in multiple places on the internet? How do we become interesting? And how do we make uh, content effort uh, live in more places? The create, create, the almost cope, create once, publish everywhere. And, and that's oversimplifying it. Uh, the reality of also, I, I really, and I couldn't agree with you more, build a system, build something scalable, have a longer term vision. Because if not, you're going to be one of those organizations like, well, we wrote an article once and no one read it. So that was a waste of time. Advertising didn't work. We put a billboard <laughs> once on the side of a road and no one called. So clearly advertising doesn't work. That's I'm the, over exaggerating it, but that's a common conversation you and I have both run into. hundred percent. And organic audience growth is very different. Uh, it goes yeah. back to the journalism or the news roots of you have to be interesting every day or every week. Maybe it's not <laughs> daily. And uh, when you sit back and you're forced to be audience focused and you have to deliver value, it does change the value proposition of what you're offering. And the, the fragmentation that the brand world is seeing now happened in media. 20 years ago when media organizations, you know, social challenged everything. Most mainstream media brands today have to exist on TikTok and Instagram and gated, uh, you know, walled gardens with subscription uh, platforms. They have to live in so many places and brands are facing their version of that over the last five years. COVID mm -hmm. has even uh, exacerbated the challenge of that because audiences are online at unpredictable times. Um, the hybrid workforce and people being everywhere, all of the ways things used to function have changed. So having content that lives in multiple places is important. And as I've said now, I think the, the magic is delivering value in every engagement. I really like what you said. You kind of I caught a thread there about you know what the what the what the world of journalism and media was 
facing 20 years ago is what businesses now, especially, and you know, I know you focus very much on B2B, but all businesses have been facing in a more exaggerated way over the last 20 years, over the last five years, kind of how it's kind of caught up. So talk about digital journal being that that is your own media platform. Like this is a piece of owned content where you mm-hmm. guys pump out. How many articles do you put out a month? You said the early, you said the number earlier and I almost fell off my chair. So I'm going to get you to repeat it. We work with a lot of organizations. Um, right now we're publishing upwards of 70,000 articles a month. Okay, we're just going to let that sit for a minute. 70,000 articles a month. And i am got some audience members that are listening and like, we can't even get two articles out a month. What the hell is a 70,000? But I appreciate the scope and scale. So talk to us a little bit about, you've been running that, it's been around 25 years as a, as a, as a platform? Next year, Digital Journal celebrates its 25th anniversary, yeah. Okay, so how many cycles of technology innovation and force disruption have you <laughs> been through in 25 years? At least an easy half a dozen. <laughs> an absolute onslaught of constant change. No and, kidding. you know, the transformation that every organization facing. Now media has had to face it a long time ago. So we've been through multiple waves from starting out as a printed magazine and simple website into, uh, you know, thinking about our offering to an audience, having to build technologies internally. Uh, A small team also forced us to try and figure out ways to automate things that could just didn't have the headcount to try and scale. So multiple waves of disruption in media uh, and also as a, you know, an independent news organization that is not, you know, funded by capital markets or uh, public markets, a small private company has to do things in different ways to try and compete. So the media world has been a wave of trying things, breaking things, failing, and then looking for the success measures and building around what works. And I think the key for on the media side, and I think it's really coming together on the brand side now also, is today our biggest value that we, the, the the ecosystem around us and bringing partners in and working with others has been a non-traditional way for a media company to grow. You know, we didn't draw a line around us saying we're, we are digital journal. We are only going to work with us. Audience members come to us and that's it. We look at uh, corporates, press release providers, market research firms, 70,000 pieces of content. It's not all produced by our team, but building a technology platform to help people get their their news out or their information out to an audience of a million plus people a month is uh, there's been lots of trial and error and lots of things that ended up helping us scale uh, through that 25-year process. 25-year overnight success story. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yes, I, I love that. Oh my God, <laughs> this is amazing. This must be so fantastic. It must, you know, there's that there's that tendency to diminish just because you don't know you you can't really it's it's hard to ask enough questions to understand 25 years so when you bringing back the balance between working with an organization okay let's just say i'm i'm running a company um i have amazing i have a new product i want to get out there um i don't necessarily have an audience i haven't built my audience i maybe have a crm that's it's probably not updated it's probably sloppy i probably shrug and look at the floor when i get asked about my crm is what often happens even in large organizations so if you're small and listening and you're not and you're not proud of your crm you're not alone i'm just going to say that as a you're in very good company um I I have a new innovation. I have an innovative product. Let's just, how would I go about putting an article together, distributing it, like working with someone like yourself, getting it on something, getting it so it can be found or getting it on digital journal. Like let's give the audience something very practical. Like I'm assuming this is a, this is an actual cookie cutter situation you run into on a regular basis. All the time. Okay. So let's just walk us through right out to it, ending up on digital journal and people actually finding it and reading it and getting engaged. Yeah. The, so the, the, the starting point, uh, as we've talked about is being audience focused. So if the new product or, or innovation that you want to get out there, it's really thinking about how will the, what will, who cares? That's the, the journalist <laughs> is going to say, I don't care about a new thing unless you make me care. So it's not, a new and innovative product just because you're launching it. It's why in the market will it be interesting? And when you're thinking about putting together a story, we work with companies or we just often consult internal teams on how to do this, where um, go and interview someone who helped put it together, go and interview a customer on what they think that they would do and put that into a series of articles. Uh, I actually would recommend the first place that it goes is on your owned channels. Brands have become, uh, you know, the Facebook and and Instagram and LinkedIn, those channels are great for distribution, but they're not owned, they're rented. So first and foremost, and in the world of first party data, having content live on your website first is I think the most important. It also gives the audience a reason to subscribe if you have a newsletter or something like that. So thinking about the announcement of that product as a series. So if your product is, let's go back to the FinTech example, 
uh, some new crypto. Crypto's taking a bit of a beating right now, but <laughs> it has. But yeah, um, if you were, it's down but not out. Let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going through its own transformations. It is, it is, and it so, is. thinking about what can you tell a story? Well, there's a broad crypto trend discussion. Perhaps there's a technology blockchain conversation to be had. There's a disruption conversation. Thinking about the buckets of editorial angles you could take into this. Having it launch on your website, push out on social media, driving back to your website. This is stuff brands do all day long. But then also part of the magic of helping a website rank in Google is we've seen huge, huge success, both on digitaljournal.com and I've seen other clients do it with sponsored content, uh, taking your content, reformatting it and looking for uh, uh, guest posts on other websites or paid placements as sponsorship. Uh, something does it, that does really well because when you can get a piece of content out and link it back to your website, it's getting a little bit in the weeds here, but you're starting to speak Google's language of yep. all of these other websites are pointing back to yours uh, and there are things you can do on a technical side to tag it so that Google recognizes it. Um, ultimately, you start to rise higher up in search rankings. Also, uh, one more really in the weeds comment, if you want to own a category, think of really long form content. In the world, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive to non-content people, but mm -hmm. a 2,000 or 3,000 word article that that does a deep dive into a discussion and then it links out to other sort of cluster content. It's been around in the world of SEO for quite a while. Mm -hmm. That does really well. So the world of what lives on your site, your social links back to your site, you do mm -hmm. paid placement that links back to these articles and they're long and thoughtful, written for humans, not written for bots or mm -hmm. search crawlers. Um, it's tried and true. It's been it's a, it's a bit of a science and a bit of an art, but it's what works and the being breadcrumbed and having everything linked back is uh, usually delivers uh, punches above its weight in terms of tactics. I appreciate that. Do you feel that you can be successful with organic only in the early stages or do you see, do you believe, I know my views, but I was curious yours, of a blended approach versus I know some companies are very... Um, tight when it comes to wanting to invest. They've never had to pay for media before. And sometimes for companies, this is a very new world, mm -hmm. to, you know, where if you're a traditional kind of B2C company, you're used to, you have a media budget, you're, you know that you have to pay to get in front of your audience. A lot of B2B companies, that's a bit of a foreign concept for them. For you, do you believe that there is a balanced approach and is is, is both required, especially if you're new to it, like in the early days? A hundred percent. I think yeah. even if you're, even if you've been doing it for a long time and you have an audience, the, the relationship between paid and organic is really important. Mm. The... Uh, you and I are on the same page. Social <laughs> platforms, they've, they're designed to force brands to pay for reach. They've amassed millions. Do you mean they're actually trying to make money? Uh, what? <laughs> Anyways, and, what the hell do you think they were trying to do? <laughs> so I'm a big, I do believe you have to, it's a pay to play to get access to those audiences, but good content can perform better organically. So on the organic front, if you're creating uh, content that's audience focused and interesting, like we've been talking about, it should perform better for you. Um, and another tactic that organically works really well is featuring other people in your content. Talk to your customers, talk to your influencers, talk to your network. Those people are more likely to share your content also. Who doesn't like to see themselves tagged in an article? Come on. <laughs> it's basically, well, these, these, these systems were made to pry onto and to, and to build off of our own tendencies and our own proclivities to be like, what? Did I get a click? Did I get a mention? And it's and as long as you do it credibly, there's no, it's it's not it's not sneaky. Nope. <laughs> you you actually quote someone for something they've said or something they've built or something they've done, and you actually give them legitimate credit. It's a simple strategy. It's basically human. It's it's how humans work. <laughs> yeah, but to your point, the relationship between paid and organic is really important, and one does not work without the other. I think at any stage. Ah, interesting. Well, oftentimes. If it's your organic, it's often an audience you already have or an audience that's familiar with you. Sometimes when you have to go out and hunt for those new audiences, you have to hunt in places where you maybe don't have reach already. And mm -hmm. think, think, thinking about that. Okay, I wanted to clarify because often that's a conversation where, well, she's paid and media, and I don't understand that. And it, it, and it can feel very expensive and feel, it can feel spendy if companies aren't used to paying in that in that play. If you don't, though, to your earlier example, you end up with a very frustrated leader saying, I did a billboard and it didn't work, or I did an ad and it didn't work. Well, you have to try lots of things and yeah. have someone measuring what works. And it's, it's the way B2B functions now in digital. And is that a tough conversation that you get to have of like, well, you guys have a formula, right? This is formulaic. I give you money. I give like, you know, as my business partner jokes, I put a quarter in and I twist the knob and a gumball falls, a gumball falls out of the machine every time. What I just heard you say is not every time. It's that claw game where you don't always get the thing that you want. <laughs> I'm super dating myself. Do they still have those anymore? I don't know. But is it, is it, how much is it 
test and learn, crawl, rock, crawl, walk, run, all of those phrases that oftentimes CFOs, maybe CMOs get it, but CEOs in B2B companies where they don't necessarily have dedicated marketers, that can be a frustrating storyline. Yes, no, we're, we're both nodding yeah, for the audience it, that can't see us nodding. I, I don't think, very rarely will an organization nail it for the first time and have an overnight success. Um, I, it's a cumulative number of steps that help you get there. I don't think anyone has all the answers to every question, especially in a post-pandemic world that we're entering where uh, a lot of behaviors have changed. A lot of habits are have altered. A lot of interests, quite frankly, have, uh, you know, as people revisit their careers and what they want to do and where they want to go and where do they want to live and work, the you have to test and learn, I think. And a, an approach that always works is make some assumptions uh, and then find ways to measure them. Mm. And as soon as they stop working, you know, give them some time because you, you could try something one month and then next month it does. But build some criteria. And then once you stop hitting your key performance indicators, stop doing the things that don't work and put more effort into the things that do. There could be seasonality around it, depending on your business. There could be market forces greater than you that could change that. But um, the test and watch is really, really important for, you know, taking one step at a time to get to the success finish line. And understand what you're testing, because sometimes you might get a success and have no idea why either. Yeah. And then you then you think you're repeating it and it doesn't work the next time. That's actually almost more frustrating. I it sure is. Holy shit, it worked last time. This, <laughs> we've got the formula fig- figured out. So back to our back to our storyline. You did, Owned, paid, paid, owned, and earned, which we touched on. You paid, to, you pay to be there. You own it, or you earn it, which is maybe somebody writing about you or featuring you in some way. Uh, they go out to market. You know, in your specific world, you'd you'd use an organic approach on some relevant channels to them. But then, would you post it on Digital Journal to? kind of amplify that reach for the, for that individual piece of content or for that organization? Yeah, oftentimes we will use Digital Journal. Uh, as a 25-year-old business, I like to joke that digital, digital Journal is a vintage that Google likes. Um, it just helps from an SEO High, tr- perspective. Trust, 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 right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, millions and millions of backlinks, been around for a long time, hundreds of thousands of articles published, mm-hmm. millions of articles published. And when you work with a larger scale media firm that has that kind of footprint, Oftentimes, you can get SEO results faster when you're working with someone that has a large footprint that can point back to you. Mm, okay. So for you, it's kind of a little bit your, let's call it, your ace, it ace up your sleeve a little bit. A little bit, yeah. And Digital Journal can be really helpful. Uh, and the way you organize and the way you think about content and the way, you know, being there on a regular basis, um, distributing that content becomes really, really powerful as a way to start to build your own audience. Because uh, it links back and helps you float higher up in Google because other large publishers or other large websites have linked to you. Credibility. Like, yeah. you know, we can use fancy terms in the technology side, but you're building credibility by piggybacking alongside of people that already have it, organizations or platforms that already have it. Yeah. It's stuff that SEO people have been saying forever and it truly does work. It's still true. It's still true. But if you're not, if you don't live and uh, breathe SEO every day, you wouldn't nest search engine optimization. You wouldn't think about some of this stuff. Yeah. And it's a cocktail. The success in digital media is a series of ingredients that makes the perfect drink or the perfect cocktail. There's no one tactic that works. It's, it's about trying all of these things and having multiple irons in the fire at the same time is uh, it, it's a secret sauce that it's frustrating because you got to do a lot of things. You have to manage a lot of concurrent thing, uh, channels, but it ultimately is why and where you will succeed. Well, it's what you said earlier. It's about having a system because if you're just firing randomly, yeah. then you don't know what's working and what's not working. And then you, you, it's kind of like Russian roulette a little bit. You can spin the wheel and sometimes you get it. Sometimes you don't. I guess in that case, you don't want to win that game. Russian roulette. Um, obviously, you work with a lot of companies that are transforming and you're probably a, you're probably a lot of times coaching these organizations on how to think about what they're doing differently. 25 years of an organization. How long have you been at? The, have you been involved the whole time? No, I'm not. It was founded by uh, my business partner, Janusz Ibral, in 1998. Okay. Uh, I joined in 2003. Okay. All right. Well, so a few years, considering yeah. it's 20. Okay, Just coming yeah, up yeah. on 20 years. Yeah, that's so... How much, you know, obviously you're running the two businesses in parallel. Talk about even if the last few years, like I know you're a huge, you know, a, a favorite topic of yours is digital, is just transformation and digital transformation in general. That business, like you aired, like media got impacted as far as how they do things long before companies are now getting, they're getting caught up in that now mm-hmm. and COVID's accelerated that. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, as you've built Digital Journal, some of the lessons and what you've seen and maybe, you know, what you'd go back and tell yourself 10 or five or eight or 10 years ago around the digital transformation 
transformation journey that you've been just embroiled in in the last literally 20 years of being working with this platform? The list of things I wish I knew is probably pretty long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So obviously, we want the top three best, <laughs> most transferable, the ones we can learn from. But yeah, going back to kind of early self or whatever version yeah. of that, like how, how, what are some of the key takeaways? Because I'm sure you're still living it now. Like it's not done. We are. And there, there are a few key learnings. Um, the, the first one, uh, I'm not going to go too much in history here, but when Digital Journal, it, it started as a technology publication. It had a website. Um, there was a lot more desire to try and reach a wider audience. And we were self-funded. At the time, it was a team of five people. And we didn't have the ability to scale. So our first foray into one of my business partners, Alex Chumak, was a developer and designer. And we started to look at the, just the product offering as a whole. So yes, it's a media example, but for you know, for any organization looking at how it reaches an audience, what we had to do was okay. say, how can we compete with large scale media companies when we don't have their budget or their reach? And it's just going to be another product that's another, you know, it looks and feels the same as everything else. And so in uh, the rise of social media influenced a lot of digital journals early days. And we looked at the publication as a product, like how do we introduce like hooks like Facebook had? So when someone tags you in content, you're notified and you come back. We were really thinking about how an audience would experience media. And so at the time, we were watching what was happening on a site called Dig and a site called and Reddit, who many people know today. Mm -hmm. Reddit's still around. Uh, just the crowdsourcing element. And so we cut our teeth or our first foray into becoming a the first digital transformation way for us was we said, we're going to be more than five people covering news with us. You know, we had a stable of stringers yeah. and we developed a crowdsourcing platform. Uh, one of the first in the world, uh, one of two in Canada that did what at the time was called citizen journalism, allowing multiple people from around the world to contribute content. And that forced us to think, I, I guess the big learning from me was I had to become a product developer. I had zero training in product development. I, you have to think about what your audience needs, what you want, the user experience, what features you need. And when you start to think about your business in terms of the way it will function at such a micro level, uh, it brings you much closer to the digital transformation journey. So for me, the big learning, if I could go back, what would have been thinking about product a little bit more specifically, because in my mind at the time, it was, I just, it was a means to an end to get more content. But when you start to actually systemize and build technology to crowdsource in this case, mm -hmm. we broke things. We had, uh, it was a, a hugely successful campaign launch for us. It's what put Digital Journal on the map initially. We got a lot of media attention from it. Um, hundreds of thousands of page views. Uh, we grew the writer base at the time to just shy of 3,000 people in pretty much on every continent. But it created a ton of problems for us because we didn't think about what happens if you scale something? Like we built a minimum viable product yeah, yeah. and we didn't expect it to take on so the first kind of built, hit. You built a bomb at the same time. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. But so now we're like, now. Success problems. These are success problems. <laughs> and so planning for scale, I guess what would have been a big takeaway for okay. me, thinking through what happens if your customers start to interact in new ways. For me, there was a bit of a conflict because I was a trained journalist. I wanted to protect the tenets of journalism, you know, truth and, and being objective and all that but also freedom of information that I love so much about crowdsourcing platforms. So initially when we launched, it was open to anyone who wanted to contribute could. We learned really quickly that that was not conducive to a news gathering experience where, mm. you know, today we would call it fake news. Uh, we had to really contain things. So building technologies um, that would allow us to scale and manage and contain um, a, a much larger, like five people managing 3000 was like, that was a huge challenge. And we had to find ways to automate things or uh, build tools for mass communication to allow us to grow. So, so many, th so interesting, like you could have planned for it, but to a certain degree you built, you built something, it worked. And then because of that, in turn, there was a cause and effect situation that then, you know, how do you make, how do you make, allow five people to be scalable and effective at that way, but you would have never known what tools to build until you kind of had that onslaught, right? No. And there was That's an interesting thing about transformation. You don't always know what the output's going to be like. 
you, you know, you, sometimes I always joke with clients. Sometimes we can sit in the room all day, but we're going to know something a week from now that we just didn't know today. Yeah, because we had we had to actually experience it. And I think that's the, the any transformation story kind of follows the same path. Now we live in a world where people share a lot of what they've learned. Thankfully, at yeah. the time there was no playbook for us to follow, mm-hmm. so we were just you know duct tape and bubble gum until we could scale, until we could put proper systems in place, until we could figure out ways to to manage scale uh, at the time and then figure out what the product offering was. So I, the, the key learnings though of, of really thinking, not everyone needs to be a product developer or product manager, but mm-hmm. as soon as you start to think about your world from a product perspective, instead of just a business that does X, it fundamentally changes your relationship with the process of transformation. Based on a handful of conversations I've had recently with some scale up companies in Calgary, probably more between series A, series B, Product people are who they, I'm like, who's your hardest hire? Who are you running? He's like, product people with 10 years experience, we can't find them. Yeah. Because everybody's looking for them because that cat is well out of the out, out, out of the bag. Are you seeing with some of the companies you deal with now uh, being much more okay with not having to have the whole solution planned out and doing those sprints and like transformation of like, well, we're going to do this for two weeks, see what we learn, and then we'll build the next phase. A lot of large enterprise organizations struggled with that because they wanted to plan things out. But I've talked to a lot of those transformation leaders and they're like, the three-year transformation plan, that's done. That's dead. No one talks about that anymore. We maybe have a three-year objective somewhere out there, but we're going to do this in two weeks at a time. With some of the companies you deal with, B2B companies that are transforming and doing new innovative things, are you seeing a lot more of that shorter time horizon, learn fast, fail fast kind of mindset starting to take hold? Which even a couple of years ago, I think some bigger companies were struggling with that. Yeah, I think the best companies take that approach that you're describing and oftentimes it's an org- it's a change agent as they've been called mm. within an organization if a company can give people one person two people 10 people room to try that um, I'd say it's a little bit more common than it used to be but okay. it's still uh, I work with a lot of leaders who are pushing rocks uphill if they're selling into a, a c-suite that doesn't quite understand why things are done the way they are um, the try it we're going to try it and see how it works is not usually how people are uh, are measured in terms of performance. Oh, it sounds flaky. It sounds half-assed. Like, <laughs> yeah. like for sure, it's all those triggers of like, what? I need a plan and I need guaranteed results and I need a projected outcome. And if it's off, so, you know, because again, I'm a, I'm a large company and my quarterly results are off by a penny and all of a sudden my stock falls through the floor. Like we have a weird dichotomy of what it takes to be successful versus an old kind of structure that is still very prevalent. And I, I think it's still very well ingrained in how we run large, especially large. We're talking about specifically, this is where I think small to medium-sized companies sometimes have an advantage. Yeah. The other thing that I've seen really reemerge is um, the importance of having mission, vision, values. Uh, mm. You know, the, the, okay. the traditional marketing support that an agency or an internal team can give when everyone knows the purpose of what they're, you know, everyone's marching in lockstep because they know where they're going. Um, I think the pandemic has increased the importance and need for organizations to do that. And a lot of companies are starting to do manifestos publicly or really pushing their mission, vision, values. We live in a a different world that is aiming to be more sustainable, Mm -hmm. um, more inclusive. And the, the art of getting there is really having a purpose. And even internally, we've used having a mission of what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And how do we define ourselves? Um, helps the trial and error uh, be more palatable and you get past uh, errors faster because you know where you're going. Get a little bit something bigger to hold it, to hold it up again. And specifically um, just like disconnected workforces, uh, remote Mm -hmm. teams all over the country. You know, like there was a like, well, you're all in the office and you walk by it written on the wall. So you must know what our mission vision is, right? Or the dusty binder on the shelf, the old joke versus now being able to understand what you're connected to when you might only talk to a coworker a couple times a day. There's so many other things playing into that. And Mm -hmm. content also, uh, plays a role in helping that system. Another thing we've seen a big change in is how external comms get communicated internally. So when you're producing stories for an audience, the why and what what's happening and what are we learning and what are we seeing? Some of the best companies we work with now are taking uh, the distributed workforce or the team that's in multiple locations and they're actively communicating. Here's our, you know, here's our purpose or here's what we're trying to do. Here's the way it's coming to life. Um, it's very different than traditional HR internal comms. It's thinking from a communications perspective, what's the storytelling we want to have internally and do the insides match the outsides? 
I couldn't agree with you more. I'll, I'll, I'll resist jumping on my soapbox here, but your first audience is always your internal team and people jump and trip over it all the time to go chase like what I, if I have a whiteboard, it's my outside layer of like, they don't know you and they've never worked for you. That's who I have to win them over. But meanwhile, you've jumped over your vendors, your partners, your existing customers often, and your team, which in a large organization, you might already be in five or six offices. Even if you're in the office, how do I know what Toronto's doing if Calgary's doing something different if we don't have a communication strategy that also engages me as a human, aka, AKA story? Yep, absolutely. Now we're circling. I guess if you're listening to this, you're sensing there's a, there's a theme behind here and, and, and underpinning it all of like, how do I make it engaging and how do I make it? I'm picturing your Venn diagram <laughs> of like, here's what I really love and here's what I care about. And if you think about a leadership team, that's very true. Here's what you care about. And there somewhere in the middle is where we come together to actually make that happen. How hard is that for organizations to do? And I know this is so so relevant to them, but trying to do this in, on your own versus getting someone to come in and give you perspective from the outside. And I see a lot of companies, we should be able to do this, but yet we've never got, we've never done it yet. Yeah. I'm obviously a little <clears throat> bit biased, but I do think external viewpoints help, whether it's with an agency support or a consultant or giving internal team members some bandwidth to try some things, I think is important. Asking new people, institutional memory sticks really fast with people when they join an organization. So new entrants coming in, taking the time to sit with them and say like, what's resonating with you? What's sticking with you? Before they've succumbed to the institutional I, mind. Yes, before they've drank all the Kool-Aid. We, uh, we, we lose sight of that. that that's such a gold mine. It's your point on having internal teams as your first audience, but new team members who have not yet been through the 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 rigmarole of corporate life or the what it's like to live inside are really they have a viewpoint that might be really helpful it's so funny about a month in of every new hire i usually sit with them and i say hey what have you observed and i said i'm asking you this because you've only been here 30 days so you don't know the why why Tyler does this or why Chad does that because of something that happened two years. You don't know all the stories. Mm -hmm. So what is it you see? But it's amazing how resistant they are. Because like, well, I, I don't have the right to speak yet because I've only been here 30 days. That doesn't always happen. But I'm like, oh, no, no. You have such a unique viewpoint because you haven't absorbed all of our corporate stories, which sometimes they're actually corporate stories can be disfavorable. Mm -hmm. Oh, we do this this way because of that thing that happened three years ago. That was three years ago. There's like, everybody's changed. It's a different team, like so many factors, but yet we hold on to them sometimes as sacred. Where new employees, uh, you want to grab that opportunity before they maybe absorb elements that you would like to leave behind as an organization. It's the art of the interview. It's empathetic mm -hmm. leadership. It's creating space for teams to, to open up in ways that, you know, from day one, if they are invited to share and they know that that's the culture, um, it, it's obviously going to make it a little bit more easier to get something out of them. But as you well know, with, with podcasts and talking to people, if it's a good, genuine conversation and it's real and it's two-way, you can get a lot of information out of people. <laughs> you, you can. The lost <laughs> art of a good conversation. What we're really talking about is make, are you creating psychological safety? Yeah. With it, whether it's with a customer or a client, with each, if you can't do it with each other, you're probably not doing it with your customers yep. or, or your vendors. But that's another podcast for another day. <laughs> so let's dust off the crystal ball. You've been working in media for a long time. I know you live and breathe and, and digital transformation as a, as a just general area is something you're very passionate about. The pandemic was, I heard someone say the day, nothing really new came into the pandemic, but man, we accelerated a lot of things mm -hmm. that were already just starting to percolate. Five years, three years, crystal ball. What do you see in the world of media and the world of content? Are we just settling into doing this better and really stopping resisting that this is the way to do it? Or do you see some other trends on the horizon that you're getting excited about? Um, I think fragmentation is going to be continue to be a major opportunity and problem and challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, being in multiple places simultaneously, uh, as more social channels launch, as more things become available, mm. I think on one side, being everywhere and you're going to the frustrating part for a brand is going to be some really, some channels really will underperform, but you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So being there will help you determine, you know, this channel works better than that one, but also, um, for the last three years, and we'll probably continue to see the rise of private sharing become really, uh, really dramatically important to someone's life. If I send you a WhatsApp message, a text message, an email, um, offline sharing of things, um, as people really think about, you know, what they project externally, that's not a new trend, but I think it's going to grow, um, as the pandemic has forced us all apart and we don't work in the same offices. We're going, the, the direct message is really, uh, mm. a powerful channel. So thinking well, about- and from a trusted source. Yes. If you send me a link and like, check this out. I'm going to look at it because you've now curated for 
me and I trust your point of view. Like yep. that's gold <laughs> from the place of a value, uh, like, you know, curating it for, on my behalf. <laughs> and I think Bill Gates wrote a famous essay in the late nineties where he proclaimed content as king for the internet. And he's, he coined a term that has stuck for a long time. Uh, and he was absolutely right. But I think to thrive today and tomorrow, um, technology will be at the heart of what every media business does. I, I don't think like the wall has fallen between tech mm. company and media company. And I think we'll see a lot of that happen outside of the media world also within other organizations as comms teams and marketing teams and brand teams start to work with the technology side or agency support. The, the yin yang of that is going to be what separates best in class for the next five years. Uh, I couldn't agree. It was a few years ago uh, when I first started doing the podcast, probably about three years ago, a couple of people were like, let's get clear. Tech isn't a sector. It's just the thing that underpins everything with what you talk about and how that shows up in whatever organization you're in. But from a media, the traditional perspective of writing a good story and then the ability to understand how to distribute and how to use technology to amplify that, they're becoming hand in hand. And there's a whole, there's new generations coming on that don't even see them as separate, you know, to be under, identify where you sit in that echelon of the role technology technology played in your life 20 years ago versus the role it plays in your life today. Mm -hmm. The two things, excuse me, that I found the most helpful for my business and when I work with others is external viewpoint and a technologist viewpoint. Those two mm -hmm. things add like true, when someone truly can look from the outside in and pull things out that maybe you don't see and you can't see past your nose um, or uh, the technologist viewpoint where a technologist will sometimes just organize information differently in their head or prioritize different things or document the way of doing things. And it's not uh, for someone who hasn't done or managed or uh, scaled technology. It, mm -hmm. It's uh, there's a lot of hard learning. So those two things, having external viewpoints and technologist viewpoints, have been key to my journey for 20 years now in media. I appreciate that. And coming in as a journalist, and you had that one locked down, but as it changed, and then technology became a product person. And amazing what you you know don't have to be an expert in, but you have to become versed in it because oftentimes it's a different framework of thinking. I like mm -hmm. how you said that. Like the what you know what you use to get the the brain you use to solve the problem that created it won't un, won't undo it or whatever the I think it's an Einstein quote that I'm completely butchering. But yeah, the mindset or the perspective that got you to the problem is not the perspective that will get, will get you out of it. And I think digital transformation kind of sums that up more better than anything. Mm -hmm. It truly does. Uh, Chris, congratulations on, on a journey. And I've known you for a handful of years and kind of got to know your business and understand the incredible work you do. But to really put the concept of 25 years and what you guys have been through as a business, but let alone then, you know, to survive it and thrive in it, but then to also build a platform that can benefit your customers and the people that you work with in a way that allows them to amplify what often can be an amazing story. But if you don't get it out there, is it really amazing? If a tree falls in the forest and hits, hits your story and no one sees it, does, did it make it a good story or not? And I think that's probably the saddest thing for a lot of product and technical experts is they do have amazing solutions, but without the skill of getting it out there, sometimes it can die in the shade. Yeah. And thanks to you for having me. I, I think it's really, there's a lot of information that's valuable out there and there's a lot of misinformation, as you mentioned when we first started this talk. So I think it's, uh, I really enjoy talking with people and organizations about these challenges and trying to get to the real answers quickly because there still is a lot of mass confusion, a lot of unknowns on how to prioritize. And I think the more people we have sharing what they've learned, the better we all become uh, as a result. Getting to the right answers quickly. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a, there's your bumper stickers, your T-shirt, digital journal, getting <laughs> the right answers quickly. Hey, what's the best way, uh, multiple ways, but what? How do, how do we get a hold of you? How do you find your content, your website, your di di digitaljournal.com? Yeah, digitaljournal.com is the media site. Okay. Digitaljournalgroup.com is the uh, marketing brand storytelling business. Fantastic. And if someone wants to get hooked up with you, I'm assuming LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I feel I don't need to, I need to stop saying this at the end. Everyone knows how to get a hold of everyone now. <laughs> it's the business card of today. It is, absolutely. Chris, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming in studio. It's a, it's a rare privilege to actually sit across from a guest face to face. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Tyler. <laughs>